So all of those things that I learned at Deloitte and the PCAB are now being executed and really manifested in this new role. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. Well, this episode really was a joy to record. As you know, the purpose of this show is to highlight all the different career paths that you can take as an accounting professional. And our guest for this week highlights three that are of particular interest to me. Keisha Williams-Smith joined us for the program and her career spans several years in public accounting with a major firm, but then also covers the startup years at the PCAOB. And now most recently, she has ventured into academia and is now heading up the master's program at her university. She has a lot of wisdom to share and a lot of passion as well. Frankly, there was much more joy and passion that came across in this interview than I was initially expecting. It just comes naturally with Keisha. She's highly accomplished and she also has highly enjoyed her career. Like I said, it really, really was fun to record. And if you enjoy this episode and are looking for more content, please check us out online as well. You can find us at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. We have all kinds of audio and written accounting career-focused materials there. We have, of course, all our other podcast shows. We also have several books and publications for you and a blog, plus even a few tools for employers as well. So we've got a lot of content at whereaccountantsgo.com. Please check us out. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's our interview for this week with Keisha Williams-Smith. Hello, Keisha. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this discussion that we're going to have today. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, for our audience, we have Keisha Williams-Smith on the line today. I noticed Keisha online through some common acquaintances. And after I saw that she worked in public accounting, a prominent regulatory agency, and is now the director of a master's of accountancy program, I thought that she would make a great guest for our show. So I decided to reach out and ask. Luckily, she was very gracious and accepted the invitation, said she'd be happy to share some of her time with us today. Well, Keisha, there's a lot I want to ask you about because you've had some some really interesting roles, honestly, but I need to start at the beginning so our audience gets an idea of how you got to where you are today. What initially led you to consider pursuing accounting as a possible career in the first place? Well, let me first start with this is a lesson in keeping your social media profiles updated so people will be interested in what you have to say. So thanks, Mark, for uh, looking at my career path and really what prompted my career in accounting. If you look back and dating myself a little bit, but uh, in my era, there were school records books that you would put your little picture in every grade and put who your best friend and your favorite foods. And then you would put at the end, what did you want to be when you grew up? So half of my school records, probably from kindergarten up until about fifth grade or so, I wanted to be a teacher. I come from an education family. A lot of folks in my family have taught. Uh, But then around sixth grade or so, I wanted to be a business person. And then around eighth or ninth, I wanted to be a CPA. Now, I am just a kid from Halifax, North Carolina that didn't have any exposure to any accountants. I am not quite sure what planted this accounting gene. But I wanted to be a business person because I told my family members that were in education that I didn't want to teach because 
because they didn't make enough money. And so I wanted to find something that uh, was more on the business side. But interestingly, most of my high school curriculum was centered around STEM. Did a lot of engineering programs and camps. And as I was preparing to enter into the collegiate phase of my, phase of my career, looked at the curriculum guides for a lot of the engineering programs and saw it was a lot of calculus. And I am just going to admit right now that calculus is not my friend. And so I wanted to find a major or something that was analytical. And what was another area in the business area that was analytical that would keep me um, really interested and keep my brain sharp. And my mother and I came on a visit to North Carolina A&T State University, visited our hometown. And the dean of the business school at that time, Dean Kweister Craig, who's now Dean Emeritus, talked about the accounting profession. And we were like, hmm, that sounds that perfect intersection of being curious, being in the business world, and more importantly, that Dean Craig offered scholarship money. So a lot of it was the pull for the scholarship money, but it really was focusing on the analytical part of business that I was able to interpret numbers and keep myself curious. And so I was very intrigued by that. And that really kind of led me on this path of accounting versus engineering. Uh, But you will see it was a very long and winding road that I ended up back in education. I know we'll talk about that soon, but that's really where I started was kind of transitioning from the STEM kind of interest into really wanting to have a career in business, but something that would keep me very focused and analytical and interpreting uh, what business was trying to tell the investors and the shareholders. That's wonderful. Yeah, I see it's everybody's story is unique, but one commonality here is I see a lot of people become an accountant because they have a, an interest in business. And it, and it makes a lot of sense because you can do anything in business with a background in accounting, li- mm-hmm. literally anything. So that makes a lot of sense. Beautiful. So what was your college experience like? Did you go straight through then as an accounting major? I did. So I tell folks, I'm the typical cookie cutter factory manufactured accountant. Um, I came in, I declared accounting as my major. Spent four years here uh, in Greensboro in a Bachelor of Science program and was so intrigued and impressed with the professors that I interacted with and really gained a great foundation for my future career. So I spent, you know, did a typical Bachelor of Science. I did the normal, you know, for students that are out there that might be pursuing things like Beta Alpha Psi, which is an honors fraternity for accounting and finance and information systems majors. Beta Gamma Sigma was very involved in student government and sorority life. And interestingly, I love sports, but I don't have a sport bone in my body. Uh, But because I like numbers, I was a statistician for basketball and football while I was here in college. And so that was a little bit of accounting because especially for basketball, which is my primary sport, you had to fill out the box score and submit it to the NCAA and also to all the media outlets. And you're box score had to balance because for every shot, it's either made or there's a rebound and it had to balance. And so that really went along with my natural inclination of accounting. And so that was what I, how I was able to serve the university and the athletics department for four years while I was here, using those skills, but also being very, very close to the sports that I loved. Interesting. You've sort of found an accounting connection for practically everything. <laughs> everything, everything. You know, if accounting went in my life, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> but I can find an accounting hook for anything. And it was a way to let me serve the university because who wants to be a statistician? I mean, you have to go to the gyms very early. You have to set out all of your materials. You have to submit it to the NCAA. So a lot of times, especially for basketball, I would get to the gym around 4 o'clock. We did stats for the women's and men's games. And then you had to submit it to the NCAA. 
NCAA submitted to all the media outlets. So I got back to my room pretty late, but because I, I found that niche of accounting and my love of sports, it didn't seem like it was a chore at all. It was something that I enjoyed doing. Beautiful. So it looks like you spent quite a bit of time at Deloitte. Was that your first position out of college? That was my first position. So I interned at Deloitte uh, the summer in between my junior and senior years and returned as a full-time hire that subsequent fall after I graduated. So that was my first job. I'd only gotten a check from Deloitte as an intern and and went to the Atlanta office. So I left uh, my home state of North Carolina, traveled down the road a ways to Atlanta, Georgia. So that was my first role. And so as I reflect on my Deloitte years, I really feel that they were my formative years in terms of giving me a great foundation that has launched me into all these other things that I've been able to do. And I know public accounting sometimes seems like this great monolith that seems scary, but I really believe that it taught me a lot of my foundational skills, not only just in enhancing my technical accounting knowledge, but things like time management for folks that are entering into public accounting or that have lived through public accounting. There was a thing that we did, we tracked our time. Well, I still do that today because I juggle a number of, con- you know, roles that I have, well, I need to track my time and see if I'm being efficient. I learned that at Deloitte, uh, learning how to manage people. In public accounting, you learn to manage people very quickly. You know, it's a senior accountant, that's a couple of years out of school. And so all of those things allowed me to build a great foundation that has allowed me to move into the regulatory role and even into academia. And when I was there, I kind of started my career at Deloitte in the not-for-profit space. And I really wanted to help not-for-profits and their mission. So I audited things like colleges and universities, large not-for-profits in the metro Atlanta area. And then I realized I kind of liked the public accounting or the public company space. And so I made a transition after I was in Atlanta. I actually went to the Charlotte office for a short amount of time and then came back to Atlanta. And I came back to Atlanta and said, oh my goodness, Keisha, you're back. We have a great opportunity for you. And I should have known to run right then, but it sounded fantastic. So I was like, oh, great. Uh, What's the opportunity? Well, uh, Deloitte, um, the client um, that we served out in San Francisco, just purchased a software company in the metro Atlanta area. They needed a new engagement team to serve that company. And I was like, okay, great. I'm back in Atlanta. I don't have anything on my schedule. This is a perfect opportunity for me to move into public company auditing. Well, that software company had significant and significant with a capital S, probably all caps, revenue recognition issues to the point that we got out there on that engagement in January of the year. We didn't leave until July because we were in the midst of a significant restatement. And so that was really the high point of my career at Deloitte because it allowed me to really form my understanding of auditing standards. Because when you're in the middle of a restatement, everything that you know in your audit program goes out of the door because everything is potentially materially misstated. And so it allowed me to really understand the auditing standards and allowed me to use my critical thinking to come up with new procedures to manage a huge team. I was one senior. I had probably had over the course of the time, 20 staff folks out there, managers, national office partners. And so it really enhanced all of my administrative skills. But I really focused on that experience because it gave me the ability to make sure that I understood the auditing standards, manage those teams, really get in the midst of what fraud looks like and a little taste of forensics. And so that was a fantastic way to really catapult my career at Deloitte in a different way. And so after that, I really got on more challenging engagements that talked about revenue recognition and that became my space. And so I really served technology, media and telecom companies because of that, you know, kind of 
experience that I had on that restatement. And I lived to tell about it, even though I you know, was working late one night and kind of drove down downtown Atlanta. And everyone knows about downtown Atlanta. There's about eight lanes of traffic and they were doing construction as always. And I kind of didn't really see the construction cone. So I took off my side view mirror of my car, but I lived to tell about it. I was safe otherwise. And we got through the restatement okay. Um, but that was something that I really feel that taught me a lot about accounting and, and auditing and that allowed me to use those experiences even now as I'm in the classroom. Wow. Auditing can be dangerous, sir. (laughs) It can be dangerous and it can affect your insurance rates if you don't pay attention to where you're driving downtown in the middle of the night. (laughs) So you were at Deloitte quite a while, I guess. How did the transition, then it looks like maybe PCA will be afterwards. Was was Mm -hmm, that an immediate mm -hmm. move? How did that transition work for you? What caused you to decide that it was time because you you were there almost nine years, I think, right? Yeah, I was there almost nine years. I was a senior manager. So, you know, mind you, I was the kid that interned, grew up in the firm, was on, I think, a positive path to move to the next level in partnership. And we'll, and we'll never know because I didn't stay there. But after that restatement experience and working on challenging engagements, I really saw that I liked, you know, things around audit quality and risk management. I thought about going to the national office for Deloitte didn't really have the bandwidth to do that at the time. And so there was this organization that was starting called the PCOB. I heard about it. They were starting in Washington. So I was like, oh, that's another move. I I can't move at this point. And then one day I was in my office, which typically I never am in my office on a Friday afternoon. I got a call from a headhunter and you could tell they were reading from a script. The Public Company Accounting Oversight Board is looking for (laughs) professionals (laughs) in the Atlanta area. Hmm, Let's listen. And when the PCOB was started, they started, their headquarters is in Washington, D.C., but they were also opening regional offices. And they were opening a regional office in Atlanta, Georgia. And the way the PCOB recruited, they wanted seasoned folks from like auditing firms to help launch this new regulatory agency. And in order to be you know, kind of evaluated or even positioned with the possibility of coming, you had to have been there at least as a manager or senior manager. And you had to have your CPA. And I was like, well, I checked those boxes. And so I followed up with a headhunter, went on an interview. And again, I'm a senior manager. The next step for me is partner. And when I had these conversations, I said, well, you know, this is kind of a risky move, but it's all about the mission and moving the accounting profession forward. So I took the leap and I took it afraid. And really in my mind, I said, well, it's a new organization. If it doesn't work out, I can always go back to the firm in about two years. And that was <laughs> that was my mentality. But I really went to the PCOB because I was really interested in moving forward the profession, seeing the profession in total instead of just one firm. And it allowed me to really enhance my kind of interest in risk management and audit quality and what does that look like across the entire profession. So that was why I took the jump and the leap to the dark side as my colleagues told me, uh, when I left to start as a regulator, and I actually had two lives or two careers at the PCAOB. I went there as a true blue inspector. And because I had uh, the background in technology, media, and telecom, most of the clients that I inspected, they were in that space. And I did that for a couple of years and flew all over the country. And for folks that travel, at that time, gold medallion was a really big deal. I mean, it was, you know, kind of the middle level. So I was gold medallion back-to-back years because I traveled so much to go to these engagements at firms and look at their audit work papers to see 
were they performing high quality audits? And that just meant, were they performing their audits in accordance with the auditing standard, not in accordance with, you know, my knowledge of the Deloitte methodology, but really were they performing in accordance with the auditing standards? So that's why my experience with the restatement was helpful because it really gave me an understanding of the auditing standards. And so when I was out inspecting, I could really use my knowledge of the auditing standards to evaluate audit work and share back with the engagement teams. Now, I went to the PCRB early and the PCRB was created July 2003. I got there May 2004. So I was a part of the first full inspections of the big four firms and it was new for everybody and it could be contentious some days. And some days I got on the plane and said, please take me back to my home in Atlanta. It's been a challenging week, but it was a paradigm shift for the accounting profession. And I really feel that the PCOB taught me about the entire profession because again, as a student, you hear about the big four, you go and work at the big four, you don't really realize that there are other firms. And the PCOB showed the entire profession from the one person sole proprietor that was doing public company audits all the way to the international accounting firms. And that was really the value of being an inspector. I got to see the execution of audits across the spectrum of the profession. So I did that for a couple of years. And then because the PCOB was growing, numbers of inspectors were increasing and you had to maintain your CPA credential as an inspector. Well, because it was such a new organization, the infrastructure was being built and they needed someone to run their training office. Now, mind you, at the beginning of this conversation, I told my family members what? I didn't want to go into education. I didn't want to teach because it didn't pay enough money. Well, here we go down the slippery slope to education. And so the PCOB, I created the training office and that training office was responsible for developing curriculum for our inspectors. And that ranged from auditing standards to accounting standards to international financial reporting standards and maintaining their CPA you know, criteria. So we tracked all the CPA licenses for all the inspectors and really built a training office that supported the inspectors, making sure they were well-trained and well-knowledgeable about the current auditing and accounting standards. And so that's what I did for the back end of my career at the PCOB. And so when I was winding up my time at the PCOB, I, I was the associate director for the training office for the Division of Registration and Inspections. And that was my job to make sure that when new people came to the organization, as they were at the organization, they maintained their technical proficiency. So that was pretty cool. But as you can see, I was now making this you know, transition into being more of an educator, even though I was still in the corporate environment, and building something from the ground up. So that was kind of my time at the PCOB. And so I was an inspector and a director. And that gave me, again, a wide view of the profession. What does it look like? And then what did it take to educate corporate level individuals? And so that was preparing me for, I think, uh, this transition to academia. Interesting. I am curious, as much as you enjoyed the audit side and, and, you know, being a part of, you know, correcting something and I guess making a positive difference in, in that respect, did it ever cross your mind to go into another, you know, governmental kind of role like with the SEC or FBI or it just, it seems like you really enjoyed the forensic side. Yeah, it was just curious. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was interesting. I did contemplate the SEC. Uh, that would have been another opportunity. But when the PCAB approached and it was such a new organization, I was intrigued by the newness and the entrepreneurial feel of creating something new. But I did consider, you know, the SEC because I would always attend the 
AICPA conference on SEC and then PCOB developments. And I always saw the SEC fellows sitting on the stage and talking about what they were doing. I was like, ooh, that's interesting. So I did kind of have a little bit of an interest there. But when the PCOB came to town and it was new and I said, well, let let me hitch my horse to that wagon and see what's going to happen there. But I never had a a desire to do FBI, even (laughs) though I had that, you know, really interesting experience in the restatement. Uh, The FBI was not in my future, but I watch enough, you know, FBI and crime shows on TV. So maybe who knows what my next uh, step will be. But yeah, I did uh, consider the SEC as a possible career route. Okay. I figured the thought had to at least cross your mind. It did. It did. Just it. For a fleeting moment. For a fleeting moment. (laughs) I didn't mean to get us off track. I am curious. So what finally prompted you to to go into academia? Yeah. So, you know, after this, you know, by this time I've been in the profession for about 16 years. But if you recall, when I got to my undergraduate institution, I was so impressed by my professors. Um, There is not that many you know, institutions that have this many African-Americans that have PhDs in accounting. And when we talk about diversity in the profession, a lot of it is we have to make sure that the profession reflects the society that we serve. And I wanted to get this PhD a long time ago. Uh, right after I finished my undergraduate education uh, while I was at Deloitte, I went to a conference called the PhD Project Conference. And it is designed to attract underrepresented, you know, populations as African American, Hispanic American, Native American to come into the business school education. And uh, the thought was, if you can make the front of the classroom diverse, you can make the members of the classroom diverse. And so I went to that conference right after undergrad, was excited, said, this sounds fantastic. However, I need to make some money. And so I went to work. And so I went to work at the PCOB. And when I went into the training role of the PCOB and had done that very well. And it was growing and had staff folks. I really was thinking about what's my next. And, you know, this thing about the PhD never went away because even when I transitioned from Deloitte to the PCOB, I thought about it. I said, is it time? And I said, well, I don't think, know if I'm really ready. And so for me, transitioning into academia and getting a PhD was really a seed that was planted long years ago in my undergraduate career that I said, wait a minute, I've been in the profession 16 years. If I don't hurry up and get this done, (laughs) my brain cells won't be able to to handle it. So it was really more of a bucket list thing for me to cross this off. And so I could give back just like some of those professors did for me in my early career. And so I made the decision to go back to the PhD Project Conference. So it's funny, I have two letters from that conference uh, welcoming to the conference, one when I was an undergrad and one when I was uh, a professional. But I went back to say, okay, is this just me? And do I really want to do it? And so I went back to the conference and said, okay, it's time to do it. And But when you have worked for a number of years, you kind of have to make more preparation. And so I took a couple of years to try to get some things uh, organized so I can make the transition because I did a PhD full stop like full-time student, you know, not, you know, part-time full-time student. And I interviewed, uh, sent in applications to a number of institutions and got one bite uh, from Texas A&M University. And I I tell the former director all the time, they took a risk on me, um, but I think it was a good calculated risk. But I wanted to go into academia, but I wanted to get a full PhD, take all of the experience that I had and now put it into a research environment. So Texas A&M took that risk and I, you know, hitched my wagon again and, and packed up from Atlanta, Georgia and went to College Station, Texas. And so that transition 
allowed me to really kind of reset and really shift my mind from being a practitioner and a regulator to a researcher. And I think that is probably the most surprising thing because I think most of the times people get into academia because they were inspired by someone that taught them. And that's great. But a PhD is a research degree. And really, I think even though it took me a very long time to get to this point, it was the right time to go because I had enough practical experience and regulatory experience to pull from to inform my research questions. And so that's why even though it felt long and winding, I think it was the right time to go into academia and to pursue this PhD because now I had all of this background to inform my research. And so when I'm reading academic papers, I can say, oh, yeah, that happens that way. Or, oh, maybe it doesn't. And so that helped me kind of marry the practical practice side with the academic side. And that's really where I feel that is my space now, that I'm a bridge between the practice portion of the profession and the academic portion of the profession. But yes, uh, the transition to academia was really a bucket list item, but I prepared for it. I had to take the horrible, horrible GMAT, but let's not say that out loud. You can edit that out. (laughs) But that was rigorous. And guess what? That calculus that I ran from in undergrad, guess when I had to do it again in the PhD program. So... All good things must come to an end. So I had to go through the calculus and the multivariate statistics and the linear algebra, but it made me a great researcher. And so that, you know, that was my transition. So I really didn't have a challenging transition because I think I was mentally ready. And the PhD is a true research mentally taxing degree that you really have to have your mind made up. And once I had my mind made up, it was easy to execute on the plan. Beautiful. So how long have you been the director of the master's program there. This is brand new, brand new. So my life in academia is uh, relatively new. So I went to Texas A&M in 2012. I finished the degree in four years and finished in 2016. And my first academic appointment was at Virginia Tech. So you can see there's a little bit of a land grant theme going on with my education that my undergraduate institution is a land grant, my PhD institution is a land grant. My first appointment was at a land grant institution because I truly believe in the mission of land grants of enhancing the society that we serve. And so my first appointment was at Virginia Tech. And so I served there in their Department of Accounting and Information Systems. I taught auditing. Uh, You know, it's no need to move away from something that you know. So I taught auditing and was doing absolutely fine. Didn't have any problems up there in Blacksburg, but an opportunity came up at my alma mater. So to come back and they have just created a new Master of Accountancy program. And so this is a perfect opportunity for me to close the loop from being so impressed with my undergraduate instructors to actually coming back to the organization. So I joined the faculty in August of this year. And so it's relatively new. And so I really came back to be the director of this Master of Accountancy program. And for me, this role is allowing me to pull all of those experiences that I've had over my 20 plus years in the profession into now pouring that into the next generation of accountants. And the director's, you know, kind of role is multifaceted. So I am creating the curriculum. Uh, The good thing is that most of the curriculum had been created prior to, but really executing the curriculum, identifying high talent people, and also fundraising for this program and interacting on a college and a university level. So all of those things that I learned at Deloitte and the PCAB are now being, you know, executed and, and really manifested in this new role. And that's the beauty of it. You can tell I like creating new things. So for the restatement, I had to create new audit procedures. At the PCAOB, I had to create a new training office. And now here in North Carolina A&T, I am creating this new Master of Accountancy program. So I like the creation thing. And that's kind of been a trend. But I really feel that this is really what I call the purpose part of my career. 
I've had great titles. I've done lots of things. I've traveled internationally, all in accounting. And so now I am in the purpose phase where I really am purposefully empowering the next generation of accountants because our global economy is changing. We need a different skill set. We need critical thinkers. We need people that are able to navigate through this technological change and understanding the outputs of data analytics. So if I can use any of the skills that I've accumulated on my journey to empower the next generation, well, that's really what I believe I'm purposed for. We're in sort of a unique position here because... You know, you're leading that program. You know, in this podcast, we're not talking to any one specific student group or student mm-hmm, body mm-hmm, because the podcast mm-hmm. goes everywhere. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a good thing. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. What do you feel like students may need to know about how to be successful in their master's program? Mm-hmm. Is there anything, any difference you see there between, you know, the education they've had so far up to that point or any helpful hints, advice, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I think students need to disavow themselves of the notion that it's a supersized Bachelor of Science program that, you know, I'm just going to tack on a couple more courses and, and I'll be done. I think the master's program, when you really think about what a master's degree is for, it is to prepare someone for the profession. And And so the master's program is really kind of trying to enhance and strengthen those skills that are so desired. So things like critical thinking. I think sometimes graduate students get a little unnerved if there's not a right answer all the time because we do a lot of casework and we are looking at different theories and we are looking at different problems that might exist in a financial reporting system. Well, you got to kind of think a little bit and it's not always going to be, you know, the answer is 42. It will sometimes be, well, it could be 42, but have you thought about the other alternatives? So I think for students thinking about graduate education, really knowing that this graduate education is going to stretch them so that they're well equipped to jump right into the profession that is demanding of them a different skill. The other thing is that I find that a lot of students, you know, study just enough to get the grade on the test and then they didn't retain anything. And so the graduate process is really focusing on your retention. How do you apply all of those skills and those concepts that you learn in your undergraduate education? So don't just study just to get the grade, retain some things because all of those things will be your foundation of points. And because, you know, we're moving into a Gen Z population and they are making us think differently about learning and think differently about how we work. And that's a good thing. But for those students really trying to hone some of those skills like critical thinking, time management, uh, being able to exemplify and execute on a standard, not just knowing the nuts and bolts, but how would it apply in practice and where are some pitfalls? So those are the things that we want students to develop while they're in this graduate education process. That's interesting feedback. I'm (laughs) of the age where I didn't have to have a master's to Mm -hmm, do my CPA. mm -hmm. And so I embarrassingly admit that I have tended to think about it as just a few extra classes that mm-hmm. you have to take. So thank you. That's some really good insight. Um, yeah, because if you go back to why 150 hours was created in the first place, it was not just to load up on some additional accounting classes. It really was to broaden out the accountant. And I'm of, we have the same era because I didn't have to have 150 either. But when you look at the genesis of 150, it was to broaden out the accountant to make sure they could do the writing and the critical thinking and the communication. What accounting programs kind of did was layer on some extra courses and said, okay, go forth and get your CPA exam. And I think within that construct, we just need to think about how we're delivering that content differently. So for instance, we still have in our master's program, the technical 
courses that they have to do, but we're also sprinkling in the data analytics. And there's a portion of the program where they come to what we call Mac Mondays, and there's more of a professional development and critical thinking, and we're talking about different topics that's akin to a doctoral seminar. And so even within the construct of we need some extra classes to make sure they're eligible to sit and get licensed, there are innovative ways that you can do that and make sure you're still hitting on those concepts and those skills of communication and critical thinking and data analysis that they'll need for this next generation of global business problems. You know, on the flip side, we have a segment of the listening audience that is a little later in their career, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. Mm mid-career in management because they enjoy hearing the stories of other professionals and, you know, how their careers have progressed. What do you feel like employers may need to know about you know, the generation coming out of college now? What are some of their strengths or any thoughts along those lines? Yeah, and I think, you know, the good thing that uh, Gen Z, as I mentioned, is forcing us to think differently. They are really more focused on their quality of life, but I also think they're very astute. They are what we call digital natives. They came into the world with some device in their hand almost. (laughs) You know, they went to the hospital and they, you know, were issued an iPhone or something. But, you know, jokingly, they really have a different command. They have a command different skills. They have an absolute great command of digital and technology and things of that nature. But I just read a recent article about, you know, how do we balance that? I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, how do we make sure that we are connecting intergenerationally in the workplace? And really for Gen Xers and probably, you know, most of the employers that are listening, you know, how do you actually harness that talent so that everybody gets to the desired end? And really, I think it is an opportunity for Gen Xers and other older generations to really provide that coaching because I think the days of having just a boss and a supervisor, that is really, to me, trending out. And it, you know, hierarchically, it may still be that way, but really moving to a coaching mindset, meaning giving these newer professionals a problem and saying, all right, here is the problem, go forth and create, and then provide them with that coaching and guidance to move the project along. I think that's what we will see because they enjoy, you know, here's the problem and then they can go research it. You know, Google is their friend. Well, how do we harness that to the benefit, not to the detriment? And so I think um, they are really talented, but the way that we can connect intergenerationally is providing them with that coaching, that support, so they can gather those skills as they're going out and being a little independent and figuring out ways to solve problems for the business. So that's what I see. I think they expect to lead early. And so if they expect that, where are those opportunities that we can give them that they can lead and build up some successes and build up some skills so that they can continue to progress in whatever setting they're in. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have three questions I end every podcast with, and I want to be respectful of your time. One more thing before we get to that, because I'm yeah, curious. No worries. You're, We're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you're fairly new in your role. You know, thinking about the future, what excites you about the educational field or the role you're in? specifically going forward? Yeah, I think specifically in the role that I'm in, I'm just extremely excited to be able to come back to a place that was instrumental in my development to build something new. And I think being in an environment that you're familiar with, but you see the potential for growth is absolutely exciting. And even though it is a ton of work and it's something new, I haven't stopped smiling since I got back to campus. So that's the micro. I think overall, higher education is going through a increasingly challenging, I don't want to say 
perilous because that might seem too daunting, but it, we're going through a sea change wherein our constituents are demanding more. Our students are saying and our parents are saying, hey, is, is the value proposition still there for higher education? So I think I'm excited about the potential that higher ed has to really come back to the basics and say, what is our value proposition? And that's why I enjoy working at land grants because land grant institutions are really here to enhance society by providing skills for the folks that go to these schools to go out and improve society. And so from an accounting perspective, and I tell my students, as we mentioned earlier, accounting runs through everything from sports to financial literacy to making sure that the investor is protected. And we have to, in higher education, tell our story a little bit better. So that's why I'm excited about. And I'm excited about the different tools that we have to do it. We can do things, whether that's online, we can do things face-to-face, which I still think there's tremendous value into coming into a classroom and having that interchange. But we now have so many tools at our disposal to enhance the learning for our students. And I think that's exciting. We just have to make sure we're doing it efficiently and wisely and not having these students go out with so much debt that they are, you know, starting from a negative position in their careers. But I think that's the innovation that could come into higher education because, you know, sometimes innovation is necessary when we're facing dire challenges. And I think that's where we are right now. Hmm. Well, thank you for bringing out that point because you're right. I think that is very important as we go into the future. There's so much discussion about education debt and yeah, being sure that the value received is equitable. <laughs> right. And, you know, there's so many stories of people that, you know, made the investment in education and don't feel that they had the return. But I think a lot of it could have been spared if they would have been wisely counseled up front. And so we really have to make sure that we're counseling our students coming out of high school appropriately to make sure they are selecting disciplines that are well-suited for them, selecting places and institutions that are well-suited for them so that they come out of it in a good experience and a good place and not so much weighted down by these other barriers to their growth as a professional. Very good point. Well, I do end every podcast with the same three questions, so we better get to those. Um, (laughs) First one's... (laughs) All right. I'm I'm on task. I'm on task. Yes. (laughs) The first one's usually the easiest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Yeah, I think I'm living in my proudest moment, and I've had some great moments. I've had you know great moment at Deloitte when I was able to successfully manage uh, as a senior accountant the large resources necessary to complete a restatement. So that was a great point. Um, at the PCOB, I was especially proud of building a training office that is still functioning, that is still serving uh, the inspections group and really the overall organization. Uh, but I think right now I'm in my proudest moment because to have the ability to come back to your alma mater to lead the next generation of accounting professionals. You know, for me, that's a circle of life. I started here and to be able to go in so many different aspects of the profession and coming back, I think I'm living my proudest moment. So, you know, come back and let's talk again in another year or so and see if I still say the same thing. (laughs) You do sound very passionate and very happy about what you're doing, which is yeah. it's just a joy. That's wonderful. Good, good. And to say it about accounting, yeah, accountants can be passionate. Let's get that out there. 
Well, the second question sometimes isn't quite as easy, but tell us about a lesson you learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about the situation, the better, because honestly, that's how we learn. Right, right. I think the hardest lesson was when I was a new manager at Deloitte and realizing, and you were a senior accountant, they give you training for that. But to me, as a manager, they don't really train you on that. You just kind of get thrust into this role and you're excited because you get a, a little bit of a pay raise. And then you look around and like, oh, I'm a manager. What do I do? And I think one of the hardest lessons I learned was that everybody doesn't work like you do. And sometimes you have to have a little bit more oversight. So I had an engagement team. And again, I was a new manager and I kind of left them to their wiles. And for folks that have lived in public accounting, there's this little thing called the budget. Well, this team, because they didn't really know what they didn't know and didn't know how to really ask for help. And I didn't realize that I had to provide them additional support because they were a younger engagement team. I was a younger manager. The budget went haywire. And, you know, that's not what you want to do as a manager. (laughs) And so I really had to step back and say, what was my management style? And I was no longer a senior accountant. I was no longer a staff and I couldn't operate that way. And so I really had to do some introspection to say, what are my skills and what are the skills of my engagement teams? And they will vary. One engagement team might have a strength and another one might not have one. And so I had to learn very painfully that, you know, when the partner and I had to have a nice conversation about the budget, I had to learn that I had to manage differently. And that was a big aha because again, to me at the manager level, nobody trains you on how to do that. And so what I had to learn is to evaluate each team differently. Don't try to have the same measurement for each team and to learn people. It was really kind of a lesson in emotional intelligence, really assessing people, what they thrived in and what they didn't, and then how I could bring my skill set to help everybody. But it was a painful conversation to have with the partner. When I looked at the budget, I was like, oh my gosh, it got out of control. How do I not know that? But from that, learn how to manage people where they are and not try to impose so much your will on them, but to really assess their strengths and then learn how your strengths complement them so that the end goal can be accomplished. But uh, yeah, I got a little bit of heat for that, but at least it was early in my manager career and you, you noted that I stayed until senior managers, so they didn't fire me over that one incident, but it was definitely a learning experience. So I've been thinking about doing this. If I ever go back and do a collection of one-liners from all my podcasts, the one out of yours is going to be, well, in accounting, there's this little thing called a budget. <laughs> it's a little thing. It's a little thing. Small thing. I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. <laughs> Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Yeah, and I will go back to uh, my mother, who um, was an educator in our local school system as a speech pathologist for 27 years. She's the best Sunday school teacher ever in the planet, and clearly I'm biased because I'm her child. But she had this poster that she kept in her classroom and in uh, the Sunday school room where we were. It was a poster full of oranges and one apple, and the poster said, be yourself. And I think that piece of advice has helped me throughout my career. You know, I'm different and it's okay. And to be myself and that is bringing all of my skill sets to bear, whether I was in a public accounting firm, whether I was in a regulator, whether I'm here in academia. And I think in this current environment, there is so much pressure to be, you know, like someone because we want to get the likes, we want to get the loves, we want to get the reactions. But at the end of the day, I think the best 
advice is to just be yourself because you are uniquely built to be the best whoever you are. And in accounting, we don't need cookie cutter accountants. We are entering a a new opportunity for global business and we need the diversity of thought, diversity of people to come together. And so we need everybody to be themselves. And so I think that was the best advice for me that I could be myself and own all of my failures and my falters and my successes, but being comfortable in who I was and being myself was probably the best advice I've ever received and that I still can remember that same poster that she probably still has in one of her classrooms to this day. But that is uh, probably the best advice that I've received that I've carried on throughout my career. Wonderful. Well, thank you, because that's something that all of us need to hear, not just those of us early in our career, but those of us later in our career, too. That's really good advice to end this on. Thank you so much for for taking the time out. Yeah, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully, I've shared some nuggets of wisdom, or at least people know that in accounting, there's this little thing called the budget. (laughs) Yes, it has been wonderful. Well, thank you again. Well, that was our interview with Keisha Williams-Smith, and I don't know about you, but some of the takeaways that I personally have from this interview were, number one, the importance of finding your your passion or, or what you enjoy. Keisha found that she enjoyed being involved with audit quality and risk management, and that realization really helped shape her later career decisions. And secondly, never give up on a dream. And her dream was to get a PhD. And the realization of that dream now means that she's able to start a whole new phase in her career. And you could tell she's really enjoying it. I was very happy that Keisha made time for the interview. I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you found value in this episode for yourself, please check us out online at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Since Keisha mentioned this, I thought it would be appropriate. One publication that may interest you is actually our latest book, 49 Tips for Working with a Headhunter. Keisha mentions getting a headhunter call in her interview. I thought that was sort of interesting. 49 Tips for Working with a Headhunter is our latest book, and it basically goes over tips on how to make sure you get the most out of a relationship with a headhunter, should you choose to use one for your own career or for hiring for your own company. You can find it on Amazon or, of course, on our website as well at whereaccountantsgo.com. Well, thank you again for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast, and we will see you all next week. There's more to come.